I'd like to start with a word of prayer, and uh, then we will uh, begin with our message this evening. But we're just, again, welcome to you. Welcome to those who are watching and seeing this later. And uh, let's, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to know you and that you long for us to know you more. And so you heard us sing that this evening, and Lord, we want that to become a reality. So speak into our hearts. Bless us, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This evening's message is entitled, The God Who Hears and Knows. Our whole series over the course of the next uh, series of meetings that we're going to have together is called, A God Worth Knowing. Uh, re-examining the God we thought we knew. Uh, we live in a world in which, unfortunately, some of the people who claim to know God are making God even less desirable. We've heard of instances of abuse, uh, just horrific pictures of God that doesn't seem to line up. And in the midst of that confusion and difficulty, uh, you see hypocrisy, public evangelists who you know claim to be one thing, but there's something else behind doors. All of this stuff is difficult, is disenfranchising, it's discouraging. And so we want to kind of re-examine for ourselves from the Bible, from Scripture, what does God have to say about Himself, and is He truly a God worth knowing? And I believe the answer is absolutely yes. I've committed my life to that truth, and I trust and pray that God will bless you uh, in seeing that as well. So we're going to look this evening at the claims that the Word of God makes about itself uh, and the claims that God makes about Himself. So our goal is to show that there is something in this world that we can trust uh, whenever misinformation is at an all-time high and we don't know who to trust anymore. Anyone ever else wrestle with that? You hear one thing in the news and you hear something else in the news. You turn to this channel, they say this is what's happening. You turn to this channel, that's what's happening. What do we even believe anymore? I don't know what to believe on some of these difficult topics because of how confusing the public narrative can be. But the good news is, beloved, the Word of God has clear and simple answers for the needs of humanity. There's no political biases. There's no bargaining for people's affections just to get them to like you or give your money. This is the simple, revealed will of God through His Word. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and start this evening. Our first text is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14 and going through verse 17. All the verses we'll be using are from the New King James Version. If you've got whatever version of Bible with you, we're totally glad. Uh, there's a few Bible in front of you, you can use that, but all the text will be on the screen for your benefit uh, if you don't have access to them. So you can, you're happy to look just what's on the screen here. Beginning of verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, he says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's the first claim we're seeing from Scripture, can make you wise for salvation. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The original language actually reads, it is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and here's why, so that the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible here is making some amazing claims about itself. It says that it can make you wise for salvation to understand how to be saved, and it was given under the, the, the breath of God. Literally, the Bible's claiming that this, this word comes directly from God himself as if he opened his mouth and spoke to us. We literally have that level of access through the word of God to know the thoughts of God, to know the intentions and will of God. This is what the Bible says about itself. It comes directly from God. 
Peter picks up on this idea in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. He picks up a very similar idea here. He says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So another claim the Word of God is making here is that it doesn't again have its origins with man. That the people who wrote the books of the Bible, Peter in this instance, or Paul in the previous instance, or Isaiah in the next text we're going to look at, all of these men were moved by the Spirit of God, and that's what prompted them to write what they did. So it wasn't just a bunch of religious guys sitting in a room looking at how to control people or tell them what to do or what to think. The Bible is literally claiming that God was behind the entire process. He inspired the men with thoughts, profound thoughts of God that they then put into human language for our benefit. This is the claim the Word of God makes about itself. God's Spirit moved them along in the path of truth and guided them on what God's people needed to know. Okay? It's just making sense so far. Just some simple claims the Word of God is making about itself. Now we go to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. This is what he says in Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 9. Now he's speaking, uh, the Lord himself is speaking through the prophet Isaiah here. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. So he's making a very bold claim here that I am God and there is no other. And here's how I'll prove it to you. I will declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Some people would call this prophecy. I'm declaring to you before something happens what will happen. And when it does, that will give you reasons to believe in me. Okay? Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So these are some of the reasons that God gives us for taking his word seriously. I'm God. There's none like me. I know the future. I can tell you what's going to happen. And God is not showing off here. He's showing us that we can trust our lives into his hands. Right? You, generally, like if you're getting in a vehicle, you kind of want to know that the person you're riding with knows where they're going and they're going to be a safe driver, right? Because you're putting your life at risk here. I hope this person knows what they're doing. What God is trying to do through the prophetic gift is to teach us, you can trust me. I know your future. I'm acquainted with your story in your past, yes, but I also am acquainted with your future. You can trust your life into my hands. And he gives some other reasons for this. Go to the book of John, or you can find it here in the slides up above. In the Gospel of John... This is Jesus speaking, John chapter 14 and verse 29. Jesus says something very similar to what we just saw in the book of Isaiah. John chapter 14 and verse 29, it says, And now I have told you before it comes, so that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Jesus is warning the disciples of some circumstances that are going to happen later, and he's telling them, I'm telling you before this happens, so that when you do encounter what I've told you is going to take place, you're going to believe in me. You have ample reason to believe in me and to trust me with your life. This is what Jesus himself is saying here. That he keeps his promises or fulfills his word and he gives us reasons to believe in him to prove his trustworthiness. Now again, this idea of telling what is to come is what many people would refer to as prophecy. Prophecy. 
And so for majority of our time together this evening, we're going to be looking at one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. Okay, prophecy is, is, a, is a powerful and beautiful gift that God has given to man because, again, we're struggling to trust. We're struggling to kind of find certainty and assurance. And what prophecy does is let us know that there truly is a God who's in control, who we can trust our lives to. And the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 2, gives an amazing picture of this. We're actually going to look at some other prophecies in the book of Daniel in future meetings. But tonight we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. Okay, one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. Now, some background leading into Daniel chapter 2. 2,600 years ago, 600 years before the time of Christ, there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar who's the king of Babylon. He attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the city, and he took many of the people of Israel captive to his land. One of the group that he first took with him were the brightest minds of the nation of Israel. Some of the young leadership, like the princes and so forth, people who were being groomed for leadership, very intelligent, well-educated, and he brought them to Babylon, and they were basically going to train them in the ways and teachings of Babylon. Kind of go through this whole process of forget what you believe, we're going to educate you now on our culture, our beliefs, our customs, our deities, the whole situation. And they make them march a thousand miles through the desert. But the men are also emasculated. They're not going to be able to reproduce children and have any desires for women. So there's no threat to the kingdom. This is a humiliating and difficult circumstance for the prophet Daniel. Because he's one of these people that are taken in that first wave from Jerusalem. Just imagine you're away from home, you're being told to eat differently, live differently, believe differently, you've lost your manhood, you're in a foreign place that's scary. This is an overwhelming experience for Daniel, right? He's a refugee at this stage and a captive, a prisoner of war. And so this is the context of Daniel chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. So something about this dream is so overwhelming, he can't even sleep. He's wide awake now. You ever had a situation like that? You have a very troubling, scary dream. Maybe you don't even remember what it was, but you're breathing heavily and, and it's kind of wrestling with you. You just think, man, what was that about? Like, it seems like it was important. That's the circumstance that Nebuchadnezzar is going through here. And it says, Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So all of his wise men to come in, tell me what I dreamed and what it means. So they came and stood before the king. And in verse 3, And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. The implication here is that he doesn't fully remember what was in the dream, but he knows that it's important. So he needs their help to tell him, what did he dream, for one? And two, what does this whole thing mean? Verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll give the interpretation. Right? Just tell us what you saw, and even if we don't know what it means, we can come up with something. Right? You got to get out of trouble and kind of scream. Just tell me what you saw, and we'll give you something. But then in verse 7, he says, let the king, and they said in verse 7, let the king tell the servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. He says no, and so they ask again, just tell us what you saw and we'll tell you what it means. But the king is not having it. This is so important to him. It is so, he doesn't know why it's significant, but he just has this sense it is. Okay. Now in verse 8, the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time. You guys are playing games with me. 
You're just trying to buy extra time to get out of trouble because you really don't know what to do. And you almost get the idea that the king has known that these guys have kind of been playing with him for a while, that their, their witchcraft and their sorcery doesn't really work. And he's frustrated because when he needs him to do something the most, the same games have been playing is not going to help him. And he's had enough. I know for certain that you're trying to buy time because you see that my decision is firm. For if you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and then I will know that you can give me the interpretation. No wiggle room here, is there? I will only believe any interpretation you give me if you first tell me what the dream was, or you will die. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. Now, this is going to be kind of offensive to a leader because they're basically saying no one in their right mind would ask for such a thing. What you're asking is ridiculous. Now, if you're the king of the known world at this stage, how would you respond to that type of situation? I wouldn't take it too well. I don't know about you. And he doesn't. So they continue in verse 11. You're crazy to ask such a thing. But in verse 11, they say it's a difficult thing again that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except for the gods. But then what does it say about the gods? It says whose dwelling is not with men. Their picture of the gods, the Babylonian gods, their pagan gods at that stage are they're distant. Like, they're not available to us. They're not accessible. The only ones who would know what you're asking are the gods, but we, we can't talk to them. We can't hear from them. We can't file a request with them. Many times in these religious constructs, in paganism, you've got to do all these deeds. You've got to cut yourself, inflict harm upon yourself to even get the gods to listen to you. And no king would ever ask such a thing because their dwelling is not with men. They're not accessible to us. The gods are not concerned with what goes on with us. We have to do things to appease them, to get them to notice us. But beloved, this is not the picture of the God of the Bible. Amen? That is not the picture of the God of the Bible. That was the picture of the Babylonian gods. But that is not the picture that we have access to in Scripture. And you will see that tonight and throughout the coming weeks that the Bible tells us of a God who longs to dwell with us and commune with us. We'll talk about this Sunday evening. In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, God said, Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wants to be with his people and be near his people. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, we're told that the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus. He became human and dwelt among us. That there's a God who's accessible to humanity. And Daniel will know this, as we'll see here in a moment. But the view of the world is that there is no God accessible. We're on our own here. We're going to have to fend for ourselves But the good news is the God of the Bible is near and close to his people, that he's there for us when we're afraid, when we're scared, when we don't know what to do. He's concerned about the things that concern us. He cares deeply about the things that move us and challenge us and make us afraid. And he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Picking up in verse 12, For this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them because they're part of the same class. 
They were being trained to become future wise men, and even the ones who were being mentored are just as in danger as those who gave this bad advice to the king, who had no advice really for the king. And this makes the king so mad that their gods are so distant in their greatest time of need, and that no wise man or charmer or enchanter can help him with his needs, so they all have to die. Like, why do I even hire you, and why do I even believe in God if they can't help me when I need them the most? You ever felt like that? Like, why, why would I choose to believe in God if He's nowhere near when I need Him the most? The king is wrestling with this, but he's about to experience firsthand that there is indeed a God in heaven who hears even the cries and desires of kings and common people who don't even know Him. And I love this. Look at our next verses. Verse 14. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Just imagine, you're, you're at home relaxing and you get a knock on the door with armed guards saying, I'm here to kill you. And he says, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, what? <laughs> why? Can you please tell me what's going on here? And the guy doesn't even have to answer Daniel. But he, if you read Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was already living a life of excellence and integrity in a foreign land. Wasn't even amongst his own people to a large degree. He could have lived however he wanted in captivity, but he chose to still live a life that honored God, and it saves his life in Daniel chapter 2. There, there's power in integrity, isn't there? And we're living in a time right now where integrity is, is seemingly nowhere to be found by public servants all across the board, even religious leaders, unfortunately, at times. But Daniel lived a faithful life, and this saves his life in Daniel too, but not just his life. So the, the Arioch makes known the decision to Daniel, and Daniel went in and asked the king to give him what? Time. Time. Now, the ironic thing is, the king was upset with the other wise men and said, you're trying to buy time. But Daniel is given time, we see here, that he might tell the king the interpretation He's given approval to do so. And the difference is the king understood and knew that Daniel was a man of integrity. And so now we get to verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made his decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Maybe you've heard of them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego later in Daniel chapter 3. That was their Babylonian names. That they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Amen? Amen. Daniel is stressed. He doesn't have an answer. But here's the good news. Though Daniel didn't have the answer, he knew who did. And he also knew that if I come into God's presence, God will answer me. He was sure of the fact that if I ask God for help, God will indeed help me. And this is exactly what happens. And his first response is not to run into the presence of the king and get out of jail and get out of trouble. He takes time, intentional time, to praise and thank God for being faithful to him in his time of need. There's a practical lesson there for us, isn't there? It's so easy that as soon as we get bailed out, we run and try to fix our problems without giving God credit that he stepped in and fought for us. But Daniel did this here. So they have a prayer meeting. God hears their prayer. He shows Daniel the dream and the interpretation, and they praise and bless him. So God not only hears Daniel's prayer because he loves him, but don't miss this, guys. It's also because of his love for King Nebuchadnezzar, who doesn't know him, that he reveals it to Daniel. 
There's a God in heaven who loves everybody on this planet, whether they serve him or want him or not. God's love is just as real for them. Maybe this whole idea of the God of the Bible is a new concept to you this evening or something that's distant and foreign to you. God's love for you is just as strong as the most devout servants who are preaching for him in foreign lands. God loves you just as much as he loves the people who are devout soldiers of his in the world today. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. This is alluding to what this vision is going to be about. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Daniel is sure of the fact that if God gives an answer, it's the right one. If God speaks into your time of need, it's exactly what you need. So he gives this beautiful prayer of praise. In verse 24, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king appointed, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Daniel's even worried about the lives of people who aren't fellow Israelites in captivity. These are Babylonians. But he wants them to be protected just as much as he wants to be protected. Because people should be valuing human life. Amen? That's what upstanding and people of integrity would do. They value human life, whether people know what you know or appreciate what you appreciate. They're just as valued in the eyes of God as you are. And Daniel lived a life that looked just like that. Don't destroy them. So then Arioch in verse 25 quickly brought Daniel before the king and said this to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. So in verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Arioch says he has an interpretation. The king says, no, 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 I asked for two things. Can you tell me the dream and the interpretation? I have to know both. If not, don't waste my time. Verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers, they cannot declare to the king. And this is his chance, if he wants to, to make himself look awesome. But I've got an answer for you. But notice that's not how Daniel responds. He says, no, 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 but there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. There's a God who is accessible when you have needs. Right, Because the king was already told, only the gods know this, but they're not approachable. They don't have answers for us. They don't talk to us. They're not near us. But Daniel makes it abundantly clear. Hey, there is a God in heaven who was just as concerned about your dream as you are. He cares about the fact that you're distressed, and he has an answer for you, king. He's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. This is prophecy that he's seeing here. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. Okay? So Daniel's about to give the declaration to the king on what's going on here. But here, I love this. Because in the face of a death decree, Daniel here stands unafraid before the king of the known world. And this tells us that when we kneel before God, we can stand before kings. Amen? Amen. When we're seeking God humbly, we can be bold and not arrogant, but we don't have to be afraid anymore. 
Anyone else tired of living in a world that's full of fear and uncertainty? Well, when you come boldly into the presence of God, He can give you peace to handle those external circumstances. That's what He did for Daniel, and He can do it for you and for me. Verse 29, As for you, O king, now He kind of explains what the vision was. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. Again, that's future language. And He who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. What a privilege. A pagan king who doesn't even know the God of Israel is being given insight into the future of the world. God is entrusting this knowledge to him. Why? Because God wants to reach this man. God wants to reach him and bless him and change his life. And that will happen two chapters later in the book of Daniel. Actually, multiple chapters later. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, him and his friends, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. God is concerned about the thoughts of your heart, king, and he's concerned about your thoughts as well this evening. Verse 31, you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. We'll show you a picture of this in just a moment. And you watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. So he sees this statue of metals that increase in strength but decrease in value. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, then iron and clay. And eventually a stone that's cut without hands will come and smash the whole thing to bits. Now he says in verse 36, Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you power, strength, and glory. So now he's going to start giving him the actual interpretation of the vision. He's correctly identified what the king saw. Now he's going to tell the king what it actually means. Continuing on. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. So it's very clear that Babylon's reign and Nebuchadnezzar's reign at this stage is a global empire, a massive world power. Okay? You are this head of gold. So what Daniel has just implied here is those different metals are representing different forms of kingship or leadership. Right now, it's you. You're this head of gold. And what we're about to find out is that statue is basically a timeline of the kingdoms of the world, beginning with Babylon and current day where he is and moving down all the way to the feet. Okay? You are this head of gold, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom will be divided, but the strength of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. Now verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. 
So he's talking about this idea that in future kingdoms, they're going to try intermarriage to bring the kingdoms together, okay? But it's not going to work. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That's that rock cut without hands. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. And notice how Daniel closes out this vision. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. There's a lesson here that when God gives you an answer, it's always the right one. Amen? That when God speaks into your need, He doesn't mess around. He's very clear on what needs to happen. So all of these different metals are representing different kingdoms that will rule throughout the history of the earth. And eventually what's going to happen is a stone cut without hands, meaning there's no humanity involved here, is going to come and overthrow all of it, and that rock will fill the entire earth. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus, the great hope of humanity where he's going to make all things right. He's going to make all things new and restore hope to humanity. So this is what we see here. These are the kingdoms that ruled and how this works in Daniel chapter 2. Okay, history tells us this. The first kingdom was Babylon. Daniel was told that very clearly. And the next dominant kingdom that came after the Babylonian kingdom, they were actually the ones who overthrew Babylon, were the Medo-Persians, the Medes and the Persians together, a joint kingdom. Afterwards, it was the Grecian kingdom. You ever heard of Alexander the Great, right, who conquered the known world in a very rapid span of time? Then you had the kingdom of Rome, the monarch of Rome, and how you know, all roads lead to Rome. And then eventually Rome would be divided. But it's very interesting because the way the prophecy is laid out is it's going to be a situation where this kingdom will lose power in a different way than the previous kingdoms. Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was overthrown by Greece. Greece was overthrown by Babylon. But Babylon's not going to be torn apart from without. It's actually going to be divided from within. This is what it's talking about, this iron and clay mingled together. And this idea of them trying to mingle with the seed of men, this happened in the history of Europe, modern-day Europe, right? The archduke of this country married the, the duchess of this country, and they tried through intermarriage to make things work. You had Hitler and Napoleon and other people, Charlemagne, people trying to merge and bring Europe together, but no one has ever succeeded. And it's because the Bible said that they would never succeed. Beloved, Bible prophecy has literally told the kingdoms of the world that are going to exist from Daniel's day, 600 years before Christ, 2,600 years ago, all the way until today. And we still live in that situation where there's a divided Europe. This whole idea of Brexit is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. That This idea of trying to find ways to unite Europe and so forth. God has, has ordained the lines of human history. Who rules and when? And the last thing we're waiting for from this, prophet, this prophetic vision is the second coming of Jesus. Literally, everything God said would happen 2,600 years ago has happened to a T. There's a story that's told about Germany. They were air raiding uh, the Royal Air Force in Great Britain. And the Royal Air Force was, was down and out. They weren't doing very well. And during this process, that the, the understanding was, like, they're not going to make it much longer. But one of the, the German bombers accidentally, 
accidentally dropped a payload in London. And, and, and because of this, London had to respond, Great Britain had to respond, and they air-raided Berlin, and Hitler said this would never happen. But because they air-raided Berlin, now what ends up taking place is Hitler is so upset, he's trying to bomb London back to the Stone Age, and that gives the Royal Air Force enough time to recuperate because he stopped focusing on them, and all because one load of bombs was accidentally dropped in London. There's a God in heaven who has foretold prophetic history and is keeping what looked like Hitler was going to unite all of Europe. He kept it from happening. There's many stories throughout history where God has kept people from doing what it looked like nothing could stop. Why does this happen? Because prophecy cannot be overturned. God's word can be trusted. And when God says something, he says, I'm telling you beforehand so that when it does come to pass, you may have good grounds to believe in me. Does this make sense this evening? God has told us with crystal clarity that the very things I said will happen are going to happen. And when they do, you will have ample evidence on why you should put your faith in me. Because if I know the world's future, then just maybe I know your future. And if I had the future of the world in my hands, maybe I have your future in my hands. And you can trust me with the next steps of your life. Amen? Bible prophecy is amazing, beloved. It tells us everything that's going to happen for all of these circumstances. Daniel 8 tells us that the Medes and Persians will be involved and the Greeks will be involved. The Bible itself mentioned those kingdoms, right? There's powerful testimonies in the book of Isaiah where God literally calls someone by name that you are going to do a work in Jerusalem and I'm calling you by name so that you will know that I am the Lord. And it literally happened with Cyrus. It's this powerful story of how God is working throughout the history of the world kingdoms. And uh, we won't have time to go into all those this evening because I would just be, be geeking out the entire night and all these powerful fulfillments of prophecy. But the point is God is faithfully overseeing the events of this world in a way to ensure that what he said will happen will indeed happen. So Rome ends up being divided from within, something that no one would ever envision would happen. And yet it was perfectly declared by God far before it happened. So war wasn't the only means of people trying to unite Europe, right? We talked about Hitler and Charlemagne and, and Napoleon and others. They tried intermarriage as we discussed, and yet nothing has worked. Europe remains to be divided even today, and it's because God's word cannot be changed or altered. It is reliable and trustworthy. And that feet and iron of clay that, that's, that's today. That's speaking of very, this very moment in earth's history. And there's only one thing left to take place. Jesus has to come back to this planet, overthrow the kings of this earth, and rule forever. And never again will we see tumult, fear, heartbreak, loss, or war. Anybody longing for that day? I certainly am. No more fear, no more crying, no more death. And so here's the question, beloved. This prophecy was given 600 years before the time of Christ, before Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, or divided Rome came into power, and yet every single one of these things happened just as God said. Now, if somebody told you the particular event was going to happen, and it did come to pass, how likely would you be to listen to them when they said the next thing? Fairly good. What if that happened like five times in a row? And then they say, here's the sixth thing that's going to happen, and it happens. I'm not a gambling man, but let's just say that you were. How much money would you put on number seven when that person says that this is going to happen? All in, right? 
Beloved, that's the point of Bible prophecy. And what God is inviting us to do today is to go all in. We don't serve a God of wood and stone who's distant, who's far away, who's disinterested. We serve a God who is near at hand, who knows the world's future, and He knows your future. And He's asking you to go all in this evening, to trust Him, to keep listening to what He has to say in His Word, and to let His Word change your life. Jesus says again in John chapter 14 that he's telling us these things before they take place to strengthen our faith and trust in him so that when these things do come to pass, we can fall at his feet and put our full faith and trust in him as the King of kings and the God of gods. And this is exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in our next verses. Listen to this. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 46. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Then the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Think of the context, beloved. The king of the no world falls on his face before a humiliated Hebrew servant who's a prisoner of war and declares that your God is the God of gods. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. It radically changed his life. Beloved, kings do not fall in the presence of peasants. Peasants fall in the presence of kings. There's only one variable that can lead to this, and it's the power of God. Amen? The revealed power and will and prophetic word of God humbled the king of the known world, and it changed his life. And he pronounces that truly your God is the real God, not what the magicians are serving. I'm not interested in a God who's distant. I'm interested in a God who hears and knows. This is what we see through the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. So if God is concerned about the details of the history of the world, I assure you that God is concerned about the details of your life, the things that trouble you. Maybe there's things that keep you up at night, just like Nebuchadnezzar, and you don't have answers for those, and you're struggling with that right now. There's a God in heaven who knows. There's a God in heaven who cares, and He would long to speak into that space for you. And the way to find those answers is to commune with that almighty God in his holy word. There are words of life in here for you today, beloved. And I believe that each night as we're meeting together and we start tackling some of these serious and real issues that humanity is wrestling with, we're going to find hope. We're going to find answers. We're going to find peace. And we're going to find surety in a world that is filled with uncertainty. And we're going to find that truly there is a God who is worth, sowing, worth serving and knowing. And this reminds me, uh, finishing out in Daniel, this reminds me in John chapter 7, there were some guards who were sent to arrest Jesus in his life. And these guards were sent to arrest him uh, on behalf of the religious leaders. They're concerned by the things that Jesus is doing. He's not really towing the line to our system. We don't know what to do about that because we've had these rites and ceremonies and rules and regulations that aren't even in the Bible. And this guy's just kind of rocking the boat. We don't know what to do about this. So they send these guards to arrest Jesus. But the problem is they sent these guards to arrest Jesus. <laughs> and when Jesus starts teaching and preaching and speaking of the kingdom of heaven, they're mesmerized. They can't believe the things they're hearing. And eventually Jesus stops teaching and they just go home. And they come back into the presence of the religious leaders and they say, where is he? And they say, 
No man ever spoke like this man. Why have you not apprehended him? Why have you not arrested him? No man has ever spoken like this man has spoken. They realized they had been on holy ground. Again, these are people who are not followers of Jesus. But when they encounter his words, they realize there's something different about him. No man ever spoke like this man. And beloved, I would tell you this evening that no book ever spoke like this book. There is nothing available to humanity that can speak into the deepest wounds and heartbreak of your experience and offer hope and healing and freedom like the Word of God can. I know that because I was a broken man, not knowing Jesus, culturally believing in Jesus, but I did not know Him. And my life was a mess. But when, and what I love about my story is that I wasn't looking for God. But the good news is God came looking for me. Amen? And He changed my life, guys. I did not look, I had no ambitions to be doing what I'm doing before you this evening. I was a man living in the world and for the world. I had no ambitions of giving my life and my plans up to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But when I encountered the living word of God and the living Christ, I found what these men found. No man ever spoke like this man. No word ever spoke like this word spoke. And it changed my life. And it can do the same for you this evening, beloved. I promise you that. No book is spoken like this book. No book on the planet has spelled out the history of the world and dramatically impacted the world as the Bible has. There have been great literary works throughout the history of the world that have been a blessing and an inspiration to humanity, but none of this sort. And the amazing thing is the Bible is culturally consistent. Why is it that a book written by nomadic Jews is changing the life of Jamaicans today? It's because there is power in this word to do something that no other book can do. It's changing the lives of people who aren't Jewish, who have no cultural attachment to Judaism. Why? Because there's power there, beloved. It speaks as no book speaks. Jesus lived, and the reason why they say that no man ever spoke like this man is because no man ever lived like this man. There's a life that Jesus lived on this earth that is amazing. We'll talk about that in two nights. But it stood up to its toughest critics. For thousands of years, people have tried to discredit Scripture. They've tried to discredit the God of the Bible and to no avail. God is alive and well. God is not dead. And this book is still changing lives today. Amen? Amen. It's standing the test of time. I remember hearing a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Anyone ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? He was a powerful gospel preacher in the 1800s in England. And... They asked him a question. They said, well, how would you defend the Bible? And this is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, very easily, I would defend the Bible in the same way that I would defend a caged lion. I would simply let it out of its cage and watch it defend itself. Isn't that amazing? How would you defend the Bible? I would let the thing do what it does best, change people's lives and speak in a way that nothing has ever spoken before. So we close with this idea, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. 
My invitation to us this evening, to each of you this evening, is to be willing to commit to knowing God in His Word and to see what the Bible is truly what it claims to be, the Word of God that can change your life. This is what we're going to talk about in our meetings, not man's theories. We're going to be opening the Word of God and what does this have to say about who He is, what His plan is for humanity, how it can change your life. That's what we're doing. Right? That I promise you that everything you hear in these meetings is going to come directly from the Word of God. And what we read in 2 Peter 1 and in 2 Timothy is that this is the divine word, breath, thoughts of God. And if we want to find out if there's a God worth knowing, this is where we search. And I hope that you've seen this evening. This word is reliable. It's trustworthy. It can change your life. And so here's my appeal to us this evening. Would you be willing to make a decision this evening just to test God in His word for yourself? I'm asking you to sign on a dotted line. Would you just be open to you and Jesus beginning a relationship in the Word? To give Him a chance to speak into your life. To give Him a chance to speak as no man ever spake. To do as no man ever did. And to change your life. And if that's something that you feel that you would be willing to do this evening, to give God a chance, if God would go through all of this and protect this book for 2,600 years, right? Even longer than that, really, through the course of salvation history. But would you, would you be willing to say, if that book is that important and has been preserved for this long, then I want to give him a chance to use that word to change my life. If that's you this evening, I just invite you to raise your hand to heaven. God, I, I want you to use this word to do something in my life, to change me, to speak to me, to grow me. Amen. Bless you for that. To give him a chance to speak to you. And I would encourage you, prayerfully and intentionally bring before him, God, these people are, something's happening in that building over there. If these people really are going to be preaching from the Bible and speaking into this experience, I want to be there. I would strongly encourage you, keep coming. Tomorrow evening, we're going to be addressing something I think is of paramount importance because we find ourselves in a stage in our history where, yes, that may be true, D, if, if what you're saying is true, that the God of heaven not only knows the empires of the world, but he knows my future, and that leads to a very logical question. Then why do people suffer? If God truly knew the end from the beginning, then why did evil come to exist in the world that Genesis says was good, 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 very good? We're going to address that tomorrow night. And what is Jesus going to do about the problem of evil? Is he, does he have a way to really make this work? If that's true, if that rock cut without hands is, is our coming king to wipe out all these other kingdoms, what gives him the right to do that? What has Jesus done to buy back this world? We're going to cover that Sunday night. Powerful, Christ-centered, biblically-based messages addressing these very things. Guys, you don't want to miss it. These are messages that are going to change your life. And I know that because they changed my life. I was where you were some years ago, seeking, looking for opportunities to just grow, hear what God is about. And I truly believe that these things are going to change your life. And guys, God loves you. God loves you. He loves Nebuchadnezzar. He was willing to speak into that man's experience and give him light that other people didn't have. And this process of God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar eventually leads to his conversion. Imagine that conversion began by the all-powerful God of heaven giving a dream to a pagan king who had taken his own people captive, God's people captive. If God can work in Nebuchadnezzar's life and change it for good, I, I fully believe, beloved, he can change your life too. Amen?
And heaven's rejoicing over your decision. To just want to know Him and to grow closer to Him is the most honest, sincere, and best decision you'll ever make in your life. I promise you that. If I never see you again, you've made one of the best decisions you can ever make. But I hope we do see you again. Because the Word of God is powerful and has many lessons for us. And we've got children's meetings, right? Beautiful Christian programming for your children as well. So tomorrow evening again, the problem of evil, does God care? If God truly knows the future, how do we end up where we are today? So you definitely don't want to miss this. But I want to close with a word of prayer. But before I do that, has this evening's message made sense? Yes, has this made sense this evening? All right, if you have not received them yet, there are handouts for you that give you some basic summation of what we covered this evening so that you can restudy this for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. The references are there. The comments are there. Feel free to search the scriptures and see the same things that we saw in our time together this evening and to make it your own. And if you feel that there's other people who need to be at these meetings, what you saw or what's been speaking to you has been a blessing, invite them. We'd be happy to have them. There's room here. There's also room in the back. We have an overflow room. We're happy to do that. If you'd like access to recordings from the meetings, we're happy to arrange for that as well. Just make sure we have your email address. Tell the people registration. I want access to tonight's message. I'll give you my slides. You can have all the references that we had in our thing this evening. I'll give them to you. You want the recording to listen to later. We just want people to grow in Jesus. That's our desire. We want people to know God. I I believe this world is falling apart at the seams right now. And more than ever, I want people to find hope and answers and freedom in Jesus. That's why I'm doing this. And, And I believe that's why you're here. And so if you want more resources to keep growing, we're happy to take care of you. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for loving us, for providing for us, for speaking to our hearts this evening. God, if you know the history and the future of the world with absolute surety, then I can trust you with my life. And if you care to speak into the space of Nebuchadnezzar's confusion and heartbreak and anxiety, then Lord, you can speak into the heartbreak, anxiety, and and lack of surety in our hearts this evening. And I hope and pray that you've kindled a spark in our hearts to know more, to know you more. That's what we want That's what these meetings are about, to realize that there truly is a God worth knowing. And maybe if we've encountered people who claim to know God, but then hurt people, innocent people, and we're just struggling with that. If we've encountered hypocrisy in the church and all kinds of other difficulties, God, I pray that we would not put our trust in princes and in prelates, but Lord, we would put our trust in the God of heaven, the Prince of princes. So Lord, speak to us, guide us, Heal us and set us free, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.